And you know, I was going through Wikipedia today, man. You've been busy, and you? <laughs> you've been very busy. I've been busy update, updating my Wikipedia site. That's what I've been busy doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah I mean, it, one of the things is um, even people, if people get the impression that I've done, you know, three scary stories in a row. Um, for me, writing them, I might have written those like in over four years and done lots of other different stories between them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, you get all these sort of briefs and stuff going, can you do a, a story like season 12 or something? And you go, OK, you know, um, so sometimes the briefs might be a bit samey, you know, they might be asking me to do the same thing. but. Even then, I don't. I don't think. I mean, one of the sort of problems or challenges you face with these things is that there's been two, over two hundred big of a finish stories, um, yeah. plus hundred odd hundreds of TV stories and comic strips and books. So you're you're not just trying to avoid repeating yourself. You've got to try and avoid what everyone else has done. And. Uh, so that pushes you to do more interesting things, I think, because, uh, you know, you could do a, have a really boring idea. Like, you know, I know I'll do a, um, a Doctor Who meets the Phantom of the Opera in the in the late nineteenth century. And it's like been done. You can't do that. You know that they, that story's happened in nineteen seventy seven or nineteen seventy six, whatever. You can't do anything like that. So you have to come up with stuff which is more interesting every time. Um, and certainly over the last couple of years, I think it's I've got a bit eccentric. <laughs> it started getting a bit madder because I started going, um, how how can I get away with not get away with, but um, what can I how can I surprise people? You know, because if you've read. 200 or listen to 200 Doctor Who stories, you know the format quite well. Mm -hmm. You know the tricks. Um, you come in with certain expectations of going, oh, this is going to be a, a history story. So it's going to be about um, something that threatens to change history and the Doctor has to make sure that it's changed back and then he has to escape. And you, go, you, go, you try and sort of go, okay, that's what, I know what people are going to come be coming to it with. So let's try and do something different. And it's always trying. I always think of you as a very. I feel like I'm doing the interview now. Do you know? Yeah. I may, I may cut some of that bit actually, though. Do you yeah, know? Use, that... you can use I uh, I always think of you as like a very funny writer. And then when I sort of step back and go, well, I want my absolute favourites. Like Marvel off. Um, one of his absolute favourite big finishes is Protect and Survive. He loves that one. One of my favourites is Static. And I I bloody love anacrophobia as well. So like when you're when you do scary, I I think I think they're my favourites, you know, because you give me the bloody willies. That's why. <laughs> yeah, I think um, you've named some there, which which turned out really well. Uh, when you're doing, uh, I mean, it, it it's the same with comedy, but I think with particularly with something scary, you are sort of hoping that um, it's going to be. Further down the line, the director, the cast, and the sound design and the music are going to make it work. You know, it's all going to be as scary as it can be and stuff. Um, and certainly with uh, static, uh, 
the cast and that were fantastic you know they were on form that day those two days and um jamie who directed it did a great job and it just came together and there'll be other times where i've written scripts which i go this is really really scary <laughs> and it doesn't quite um I mean, I did one about um, uh, the Cloisters of Terror, which, again, I thought was a really scary one when I wrote it, but it's quite, kind of nice, but it, it didn't quite have that sort of visceral quality that I think Static got and uh, Protect and Survive, yeah. I think the... Um, no, I, I won't ruin it, although I'm terrible for doing spoilers on this podcast, but the um, ending of Static... I didn't see coming at all. I don't think anyone was brave enough to go there, but uh, I'll I'll leave out there and just say everyone go and buy it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a ghost story, you know, oh. and um, ghost stories have a different rule of the the genre. Ghost stories have have shocking, uh, heart wrenching, sad endings. Like, ghost stories don't have happy endings. Sorry, <laughs> you know. Um, so again, it's just seeing how, what can I do? How can I surprise people? Welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife. Uh, we are not doing a Doctor Who commentary podcast today. Today I am with one of my all-time favourite Doctor Who writers. Uh, whether that is writing novels, writing uh, Big Finish audios, writing comic strips, it's Mr Jonathan Morris. How are you doing today, Johnny? Hello, it's lovely to be speaking to you, Joe. I'm just lovely to be here. We have met once before, you know. Do you remember? Uh, did you come to a signing or something? Was it? Oh, well, you did a reading at a. Oh yes, I did a reading about. I, was, I, I gave a talk on my life, on my career. Yes, that was about. That would be when I was promoting. Um, goodness me, uh, was it the Hoon of, um the um, the Monster Vault? It was before lockdown, wasn't it? It was quite a while. Ago. Oh, no, way, way before. Way back uh, this, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the Tomorrow Windows had been out for a little while, and I said oh, to you God. off mic earlier that uh, you wrote inside the book uh, that I was your number one fan, ten out of ten, which is still the best review I've had to date. Thank you very much. Um, and I, that was the only way I, the only reason I travelled all that way, you know, was to come and see you. I was desperate to meet you. Unfortunately, you were a very busy man, but I did get like <laughs> about. I got about a minute with you. I was very happy. Uh, my my memory is I had to do two talks in the same day, yeah. and the second talk I did the same talk again, and I, I didn't get all the stuff. Where I got laughs the first time, went completely flat the second time. It's like, okay, I now understand what it's like to be a comedian. Now this is this is, um, you go. What did I do? It was funny the first time. I find you know whenever I, when I do these podcasts, every time I try and script myself, it just falls flat. 
the best thing to do is just to make it up as you go along. But one thing you definitely don't do is make it up as you go along when you're writing these fabulous Doctor Who stories. Um, can I ask you first then, what is your Doctor Who story? I, I ask everybody this. Like, so when did you first discover Doctor Who? Um, well, it's in the in the mists of childhood. Um, so I don't think there was an inciting incident. There wasn't a one one thing that happened. Um, so I have, I have memories of you know watching the TV show um, from around Horror of Fang Rock Part Four. So I would have been just four years old, um, and because I remember seeing the Invisible Enemy and going, "Oh, I've seen this one before." So I watched I watched the repeat of that, um, and by the time you get to um, 1979, it's going in deep. You know, I've I'm watching it once, and it's the whole thing is like you know, it's like um. Uh, Total recall. It's a perfect memory, you know. So for years, even though sit at death, there was no scripts or synopses. I was going, the spaceship explodes, and then it's purple blossom, and the, the camera pulls up, and you see the Eiffel Tower. It's like it was all in. It was, it was vivid. It was stuck there. Um, and then I was just reading the novelizations, uh, the, the Target books, and uh, I remember one Christmas, I sort of. The main present was this big sort of cardboard box and sort of opened it up. And I think my mother had been around charity shops and cardboard oh, sets wow. and stuff for about three months. And there was about 40 Target books. You know, all the ones I hadn't got because she had a list of ones I already had. Um, I can't imagine your excitement opening that I, box. I was, I was just outside. And by the end of that day, Christmas Day, I'd read one already. And she was going, don't read them so quickly, <laughs> you'll use them up, you know. But, and also, I mean, one of the great lessons I learned from reading those is I'd get the target book and I'd go, go through the pages until the doctor turned up and I'd start reading from there. <laughs> but anything that happened before the doctor turning up, you know, anything which was, you know, three blokes in a power station discussing um, keeping the impeller shaft running, I would ignore because it doesn't matter. Now, the story begins with the first bit of the Doctor. That means you missed the fabulous first line of Dalek Invasion of Earth. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, um, through the ruins of the city. I, I mean, I think, I think that's probably my favourite one. Um, but that's OK, because the before the Doctor turns up, I think it's only about half a page. It's not too bad. Um, no, I, I can remember um, parts of that vividly, because it has the odd line where Ian is hoping against hope. But you can find a cutting thing. And I was, for years ago, I don't know what hoping against hope means. Just, <laughs> I still you know, don't. And it has all the stuff, you know, about um, if you twist your ankle, you should put a wet handkerchief on it, which I'm sure is, which isn't Bollocks. in the TV, which isn't in the TV version, but we all think it is because we remember it from the book. So I think Barbara so, yeah, so, wets a hanky, doesn't she? But I, <laughs> I don't think it's a magic cure for a twisted ankle. No, I think I think um, they go off script towards the end there, and so all the stuff they've set up gets. Anyway, I've wrote a whole book about that. I've wrote a book about the making of that. Um, but in terms of my story, then, uh, yeah, getting Doctor Who weekly as it was, um, um, issue twenty six, which is the Star Beast, final part of the Star Beast. Hmm. Um, 
and the annuals and stuff. It was all just ways of keeping it going in your head when it wasn't on television. Um, and you know, and then you'd have to get a video recorder with the five doctors. So then you could watch things again and again and you find ways of getting out the stories, you buy them. A great expense from getting Tower of the Zygons sent by surface mail from Australia and stuff. Extraordinary things. Um and it was just uh it brought me such excitement and such joy and um and I don't know if it is because I've, I've spoken to other fans about this and they all they all reach the age of having intimations of immortality and go, why did I get to Doctor Who? And I, I go, well, um, my childhood was quite happy. I think um, I was left to my own devices a bit because of um, I don't know, my parents had to look after my brother a lot. Um, but uh, I you know, just sitting and reading Doctor Who books or drawing monsters or writing my own stories, which happened very soon, you know. Um, I got one from when I was about, about 1980, so I've been about seven. That's when I wrote my first Doctor Who novel. Um, uh, it was just happiness. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't, but it wasn't to escape any sort of pain or anything, as I call it. It was just, I've been very lucky, you know. Um, so yeah, and then you get sucked into fandom. You get sucked mm. into um, fanzines and the dwas and stuff, um, and local groups and things. Um, mainly just because you want to see all the stories you haven't seen. That's that's the overriding factor. You go to conventions, and then have a panel where it would be, um, I don't know, people Richard Franklin and John Levine, and you go, but they're showing the chase. On a shitty in a, in a rubbish <laughs> copy in the next room. I want to watch the chase. So I might not, John Levine and Richard Funkin, they're not going anywhere. Uh, I, might not, I might never get the chance to see the chase again. Mm. So, so you go and you just go to watch videos, which seems an odd way around now, but um, I think I made the right choice. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, and uh, and then becoming writing the stuff, it was, um, I had a a well-deserved hiatus from Doctor Who during most of the 90s. Um, and But then I started reading the books again. And, um, you know, there are two types of Doctor Who books. They're the ones where you go, oh, this is brilliant. I, I wish I could do something like this. And there's one where you go, this is fucking terrible. <laughs> They'll print anything. They must be desperate for writers. And I think they're, they're about 50 50. You know, You've read my there. reviews then, yeah? That's basically yeah. the two directions I go. So, and um, I, I was sort of inspired to go, okay, um, I, can, I can do this. And all the best writers are moving on or have left. Um, so there is a vacancy. Um, and so I was on a. On a uh, yeah, an internet forum, some sort called, where I put together um, the synopsis for Festival of Death. Um, and everyone was sort of raving about it, so I sent it in. And I got it got, made, it got commissioned. And I still have the, the letter from Justin Richards, which was, uh, again, that was an incredibly joyous letter to receive. Um, um, 
because then I sort of felt, okay, I can go to the tavern now. You know, I can... Uh, uh, I, I, strives. Yes, yes. I mean, because everyone else had earned their stripes doing fanzines and stuff during the 90s, and I hadn't been around. So, um, and so, yeah, that was sort of opened things up. And I've sort of been doing it ever since. I mean, there have been gaps, which people will not have noticed because of things being released. But, you know, there's been gaps of a year or two years since uh, over that period. Well, I haven't done anything, anything for Big Finish. No BBC books, nothing for Doctor Magazine. Um, but because of things still being released, you, th you think I haven't gone away. And then I come back and it's, it, it's seamless. So um, so I remember talking to going to Eddie Robson at a Big Finish party once. And I was going, why am I here? I haven't done anything for Big Finish for three years. And Eddie's going, no, why? But we've had stuff released in the last two months. You know, it's just... Just enjoy the booze, all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's good parties, yes. 20, 25 years next year, there's got to be a party for that. I've got to say, one of, you know, life goes up and down and lots of things happen. And one of the constants in my life is over the last 20 years, I can be guaranteed that a Jonathan Morris story of some kind or another is going to come out and I'm going to really enjoy it. Okay, so <laughs> thank you for that. That's, that's quite... I, um... I, I have read some of your reviews, so I know that isn't always the case. Uh, oh, okay. I'm wondering, really. <laughs> but, um, I, it's, I like to... it's very rare, though, isn't it? It's rare, but Acknowledge also, that. Um, I mean, there's two things. One is I, I think I'm, I can, I'm a versatile writer, so I can write good things and bad things. You know, other writers like John Donner, he's he can only do good stories. He's very limited in his range, whereas I can do good and terrible. Um, I in fact said on I've got a. a, a big finish podcast called finish big and i recently said um when we were covering blood ties that uh it's astonishing you know i said to me johnny out doctor who stories for 20 years now and he ain't gone off the boil like i don't know how he keeps his imagination fertile but somehow he does it yeah um i don't, I don't know i think i just love it um uh that's sort of where it comes from i mean it is a it's an odd thing actually because um I have watched so much of Doctor Who enough, you know, that I don't watch it very often just for pleasure. Um because I mean um if I for instance if I've just written a um let's say a a Doctor and Tegan story, I'll have what I'll have had the Doctor and Tegan stories on um I play on Bitbox playing in the background before I've written it while I was writing it. So those stories have been refreshed in my mind. So I sort of sort of watching them for work reasons to get the voices in my head. Um, so I think I also think one of the sort of important things is to have lots of interest outside of Doctor Who. So um, I try to sort of read read science fiction novels and films and all sorts of things. Um, I don't tend to um, uh, listen to other people's stories very much or um, read other people's books uh, because it because it is um, partly it's because it's like a busman's holiday it's it's the same thing and it's so I'm not enjoying it properly and I'm also enjoying it I'm also I find myself going 
envying if it's if it's good, or trying to listen to it, going, oh, I can nick that, or um, uh, being frustrated because it isn't up to standard, and that's that's bringing that's making it work again. You know, it still come, becomes work. So, um, see, so yeah, and so I do, I do, yeah, try and keep it fresh. I mean, uh, and I don't think I've. I mean, the, the story I've told before, I think, is there was a Peter Davison story I was writing, which was um, uh, Prisoners of Fate, I think, mm. where um, it begins with the TARDIS picking up a distress signal and light being forced down to land. And as I was writing it, you know, the, the TARDIS scene at the beginning of it's picked up a distress signal and, and I was going, oh, I've written this scene before. This is just crap, you know. Uh, you know, I, I've... I've done this, this, this. I did this in cobwebs. You know, it's, it's exactly the same scene, and I can't. I'm as I'm writing it, I'm finding it boring. You know, because it's just doing stuff that's been done before. Um, and I couldn't find a way of writing it that was interesting. I just couldn't because it was. I was just make, I was having people taking the piss in the scene, which is never a good sign. That, you, know, you know, having to go, oh, <laughs> it's another distressing. Oh, it must be Tuesday. Um, so in the end, I just cut that scene. Just went straight to Taras's land, and it's like, oh, that works because I've avoided repeating myself. And I mean, I have generally always tried to avoid repeating myself. Like any writer, there are there are ideas and themes that sometimes I revisit, sometimes deliberately, sometimes unconsciously. Um, but I'm always sort of go going. If it's going to go on the shelf over there with all the others, it needs to be a different one. It needs to be doing something I haven't done before because that's what keep that is what keeps it fresh is um, trying to tell a story which is doing something in which is in some way new and keeping it new. Well, taking it right back, so I've got a question I want to ask you about something you said earlier that you wrote your first Doctor Who story at seven years old. Did uh, any of those ideas ever end up in your Doctor Who stories that you wrote a lot a lot later? Because I'd love to know what that was. Um, it's called um, uh, Doctor Who and the Conquer of Time, because I didn't quite know how to, how to use the word conquest. <laughs> um, oh, I saw I just saw a massive conquer uh, then. Yeah, no, and it's it's um, actually I I think it's quite suspicious because it's about um, uh, a spaceship which is full of ghosts. And then the ghosts turn out to be Cybermen. And oh. then I think actually Russell might have seen my story and just <laughs> it. and it, that the first time that's happened. It's not the last time something like that's happened. <gasps> um, but I I haven't used that in any sort of stories because it's it, it is bits of um of target novels stuck together. Um, but that said, there's a story I came up with when I was about fourteen. Um which I have used in a story which is coming up, which hasn't been announced mm -hmm. yet, which is, I'm sure I'll mention it in interviews at the time going, this is an idea that I've been pitching for 35 years. <laughs> um, and it, and where I worked out the whole story, it wasn't just an idea, it was six parts. This is episode one, episode two. And although I've lost that original synopsis, when I came to write it again, I could remember it. Wow. Um, so when it came to writing Festival of Death, I don't know what the sort of submissions policy was like 
back in the day. Was it a case that the synopsis was gaining traction online and that's what sort of um, caught Justin Rich's attention? Or is it a book that ended up on, I hate this word, but ended up on the slush pile or... Yeah, I don't. I don't think uh, Justin knew anything about the um, the uh, writers' group. Um, I think it was just uh, a slush pile thing. Um, I mean, by that point, I'd written stuff uh, for um, weekending on the radio and things, and um, I'd you know, written press releases and stuff for the company I was working for so I wasn't a complete sort of um untested writer um but it was I just sent in this synopsis with a nice sort of covering letter and um, I mean two things one is I've, I've, I've seen other people's synopsises when they write the Doctor Who stories and um they're always quite dry and quite sort of boom 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 uh Whereas I sort of go, no, this is the story. This is exciting. So I, I'm going, and then the Daleks burst in, and it's like exclamation mark, exclamation mark, <laughs> and oh no, we're gonna and put in the dialogue, you know, put in the feeling, put in the um, the stuff that's gonna be actually what's happening in the story. What's this important? It isn't just a list of things that happen because that can be very very boring, you know. Um, you know, Davos enters the room, he finds the plug, he leaves. No, that, you you need to. So even now, I try and make the a synopsis an entertaining thing to read because you um you are trying to sell you know you're trying to sell you're trying to sell a script or trying to like sell an idea. And the great thing is he just didn't like that enough, uh, not only to commission it, but he also uh, forwarded it to Gary Russell, and that's how I got commissioned to do Blood Type because wow, okay because Gary. Gary knew me because he was a member of the Eurasia fan club so he was going oh Johnny he does the funny newsletters he's a nice guy um, and he'd he read the synopsis and so he was going oh I can commission Johnny to do Blood blood Tide and that'll come out first that'll come out before Festival Death um, and it would have done but um, at that point Big finished with commissioning stuff a bit like now about two years in advance of ever coming out you know, it took ages ages and ages um, you'd write the script and it wouldn't be recorded for another year. It was like a long, long time. But because of that, I had written it about the same time as Festival Death. It was two things really close to each other. I think every now and again uh, in the 90s and 2000s, like a book would come along, like a Time One Revelation, like Just War, like The Left Hand Honeybird, where you're reading it and you go, oh, this is something special. You know, it's a debut author from a new... And I remember reading Festival of Death and just going, this is something amazing. I I, I really hope we see this guy again. That was a very complicated book. How on yeah. earth did you begin plotting that book? Well, it was. I mean, um, and it was difficult. I mean, it was difficult anyway, because as I was writing it, I was learning how to write a book. And certainly the first three or four chapters I wrote... I wrote about 10 times over, you know, sending off to my friends going, how can I make this better? I'd get notes. And I'd, part of the learning process is to learn what are good notes, right. and what are bad notes, <laughs> you know, what are, what are notes which are helpful, which will just like 
people just pointing out punctuation, which is like. Does that include editors as well, or is that just friends? Yeah, was, well, there's, there's you learn to know what what a good note is, or because mm. a, a note a note should be um people pointing out a problem, but not telling you how to solve it, uh, because that can be something they've just they haven't thought about, you know. Because if you tell me there's a problem in the script, I can go away and think about it for an hour and come up with a really good solution. Someone giving a note, they might have only thought about it for ten seconds and gone, "Oh, and do this." So. You want to have the freedom to do better things. Um, so anyway, Festival Death, it was planned quite meticulously. Um, and even then I was rewriting bits, going back to make them go back and go back and fit and stuff. And I remember um, I had a, I walked to and from work. It was like a 45 minutes there, 45 minutes back. So, and in that time, um, this is before mobile phones and, and before I had a, a disc man. So I had nothing to do but think about what I was going to write that evening. Because I'd spend the whole day thinking about what's what's the next bit I'm going to write, what the next 2,000 words going to be. Um, and in that time is when I worked out uh, all the plot parts and stuff and you know came up with jokes and ideas. Uh, because... I was determined that it would be a good book, the best possible book I could write. Um, because, you know, you think it's going to be your only chance. You think this might be it. You know, you sort of, it's your lucky break. You don't want to blow it. Because um, um, without wishing to be rude, okay, um, I didn't want to write The Menagerie. Because I understand what you're saying. I, I haven't read The Menagerie, but I just know its reputation is that was Martin's first book, mm. and it just went down like a lead balloon. And he's written some stunning books after written, that, yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a good writer and stuff, so it's yeah. something went wrong with his first one. I don't know. But, or maybe it's brilliant and everyone's just um, misunderstood it, but uh, I didn't want it to be that situation of being, you know, uh, breaking wind in a lift. I wanted it to be something where, <laughs> where, and also, you know, Justin had sort of taken a bit of a leap of faith on it and stuff, and and all the people supporting me in in the forum and stuff had were behind me, so I didn't want to let people down. But it was uh, it was mainly because I didn't want to let myself down, and I was really really excited to have the opportunity. We've recently covered it on the Hamster Book Club. I pulled together some of the smartest people I know. This is one of the smartest Doctor Who books I know. I'm going to bring together some of that. And honest to God, these people go looking for, uh, you know, T's that aren't crossed and I's that aren't dotted. And they couldn't find a one. <laughs> Even though it's absolutely, it's so tightly plotted, that book. It's glorious. It is. I mean, it has, I mean, I, I, I'm very, very proud of it. I think there's bits that I don't need to be in there. It could be a simplified a bit. Because um, uh, there's a whole stuff about um, a little girl, the ghost of a little girl, mm. you know, and, and it's like I, t I take that out to be honest, because that's um, that's all Nick from Event Horizon anyway, so it shouldn't be in there. Um, so but I, I'm very proud of. It. I'm also proud of things like because um, it has cliffhangers, and one of them is the 
that there's this um they're trapped between i think it's um well let's say let's say it's the giant spiders the um uh arachnopods and this sort of uh vortex on the other side and the doctor solves it by going okay let's just turn the gravity 90 degrees yeah <laughs> it's sucky great so so when they do that in the tv series in um, the time of the angels i was going well, I know Stephen's read my book. I know he's read that one. <laughs> I think that happens quite a lot, you know. The more I explore these books through the noise, I'm like, yeah, they've been paying attention. They've been reading. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good gag to do. And um, it's also the sort of thing that Doctor Who never had the money to do before. No. It would always be quite fun. Yeah. Well, it's... Um, it was almost like a, quite a bold move to write a book in season 17 which i believe at the time was not considered very fondly as a whole um i think only gareth roberts before had had a stab at it and i I remember that book coming out and everyone was going well we need way more books set you know during this period but i know something that's pointed in your direction quite a lot is you know i think i've used the term Douglas Adams-esque, which is, it sounds derogatory. It's not at all, because I think Douglas Adams is the smartest bloke to have ever written for Doctor Who. And for anyone to even attempt to do that and to get it right and for it to feel authentic. And I think that happens with Festival of Death. I think it happens with the Tomorrow Winders as well. Clearly, I'm assuming you're a big fan. Um, I am. And I, I when I was... Doing Festival Death, I was I've always been a big fan of that 1979 series because, like I said, that's the one that imprinted itself on my memory. Um and I I, I don't think at the time I even thought it was funny. You know, I, I thought I just thought it was a serious adult drama that um had various lines in it, right, which I didn't understand. But um watching it again on video, I was going, This is really, really good, you know. Even you know, things like Nightmare Reading has, has got really tight script and absolutely brilliant plotting um so yeah i mean there, there is uh with that and i mean that festival death was before he died and 12 windows came afterwards and so certainly this was meant as a sort of a a tribute and it was a tribute not in the sense of being a pastiche of his work but just going this is what I think he would have liked, you know, this is what he would enjoy. Um, um, but since then, I haven't really, I suppose Max Warp is a bit um, comedy, bit bit hitchhikers as well, but um, that's it. You know, I've tried, my feeling is I've done that, you know, and I don't want to, and I, you know, I think, I mean, the sad thing with, with Douglas Adams is the canon of work is quite small. And so you, there's not much to revisit. Visit. You can't go back and read his stuff again and again because, and I read it, I read Hitchhikers about five years ago, you know, and I, I don't know if I'll ever read it again because I think I've read it enough times. Um, and so it's like just a sense of I've done that. And there's other great writers I want to rip off as well as Douglas Adams. <laughs> the only the only other um audio where I, I remember listening to it going, my God, you know, like 
Alessandro would love this pitch is um the paradox planet so the oh, war yeah. the war between the you know the descendants and the ancestors i was no, just you're, no you're right that's that is a douglas adams one as well um actually because um one of the ideas in it which is um that time travelers go back in time to get the sort of power crystals which they use, need in the future which have all been used up that is taken from a one paragraph joke in an obscure hitchhiker's story called um young zaford plays it safe which has this one sort of uh one paragraph joke about this time travel thing where and i was going okay i can make a whole i can make a whole story out of a whole 90 minute adventure out of that one paragraph because his ideas were so vivid and rich and clever you go okay we could do more with that but also i mean that story is extremely um, heartfelt in terms of the sort of, I'm not even sure it's subtle enough to be called an analogy. It is, you know, it's about fossil fuels and global warming and us destroying the planet for people in 200, 500 years time who are going to sort of look back on us and um, think we were selfish and stupid and they're not going to be wrong. You know that that is the case. So uh, it's not the first time, you know, that I've uh, listened, stroke, read something of yours, and thought, "Oh God, that is one cheeky premise. How on earth is he going to pull that off?" I remember feeling the same thing about um, Crimes of Thomas Brewster when you were doing all of the you know, Di Menzies meeting the Sixth Doctor, all out of order, and I'm going, "How are we doing this? How does this work?" And then, of course, you just make you basically do a load of gags around it, you know, like, oh, well, I'm going to pretend, you know. Well, yeah, I, I can't remember exactly what happened there, but I, what I suspect is that Alan Barnes was script editing it and he had very firm ideas about, he's always really hot on the continuity and goes, oh, it has to happen between this story and this story. Right. Um, and I'll go, but it would make more sense for it to be later on. Or he says, no, it has to go here. Okay. Um, but yeah, it has a whole bit where she's, pretending to be the doctor and so i get all the um uh female doctor jokes out of yeah the way, oh it's great you know, and we can move on and it's just but it's just um i think i think it's showing that i'm progressive that i did it before the tv show you know i am uh what? because yeah that, that's a deep cut i can barely remember that story that's, that's well what, oh, that is joyous you've got the doctor and evening slide 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 even smive on a um boat on the thames with robot mosquitoes attacking them how could you possibly forget that i know i, I can't i can't I, it's it's not any sort of criticism of it it's just the fact i've done so much that even the good stuff uh if i if, you, if i'm sure if i listen to it again i could talk for two hours about that one story <laughs> it's all up here um right uh, go go listen to it we'll have another conversation <laughs> all right yeah <laughs> Like when I do listen to them back now, because there's been so long, some of them, I can actually sort of listen to them and go, oh, this is really good. And go, oh, God, I'll never be that good again. <laughs> but um, so I listened to bits of uh, Cobwebs uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I was going, this is, this is really strong. This actually works quite well. So, yeah. 
I mean, that was one of the ones I was quite hard on, you know. I should go back and listen to that one again. The thing I'm learning with um, Finnish Big is what the hell do I know? Because I'm going back and listening to all the... We're sort of around 45 of the main range at the moment. And all the ones I dismissed back in the day, I'm finding absolute joys in. So there's certainly a lot of re-listenability in so many of those big Finnish adventures, I think. Yeah, I mean, with Cobwebs, the, the frustration is that... Um, uh... Nissa has a pet robot which I think is called um uh, Loki. Um and in my first draft her pet robot was called Adric, which I thought was <laughs> really funny. Because then the cast list would be the Doctor, Nissa, Tegan, Tello, and Adric. Oh great. <laughs> but also um it's going, who can we get to play Adric, the robot? I was going, get Will Wheaton. It'll be hilarious. <laughs> He'd probably do it as well. <laughs> the, but this is when he was very available. Okay, but let's get the um, let's get the American Adric to play. This, um, so it's, that's always like, but that joke would have overwhelmed the whole story. You know, no, no one would have been taking anything else seriously if I'd done that. So, I think my issue, I was pushing against the return of Tegan, who I've now fallen in love with through Big Finish, who I, which I never did with the TV show. So they've done a math they've essentially taken that character and given her a massive sense of humor and it's a revelation then you just let Janet Fielder relax yeah, and yeah. she's the best character in it yeah I think um it took a while for Janet to sort of get back into the swing of things so uh but I think it, yeah I think it's so, but so some and also I think one of the things with that story to begin with, I was told to write Tegan at a sort of a dialed up version, or sort of a hundred ten percent, make her absolutely ultra Tegan, where she's you know she's saying rabbits and she's talking about her um her aunt and stuff, and that but just so that people just, just so that you, people listen to it and go Tegan is back, yeah. dum dum dum. Um, but that's not really good stuff to play because it's really sort of uh, a cartoony version. And then after about fifteen minutes in the story, it sort of I start writing the character properly, and it sort of works out much better. I think by the time you get to the entropy plague and prisoners of fate and things like that, I just she's just so relaxed yeah, and, into the role by that point, you know, and just yeah. loving. And and the waters of Amsterdam, which I think oh. is. Fabulous. A, my sort of overlooked classic, I think. So, very, we listened to that last week, actually. Do you know, I, I'm, I'm in the advantageous position oh. now of being in a relationship with another Doctor Who fan who's also a big Finnish fan. So, <laughs> we listened to a lot. We put that one on last week. Um, can I take us back to the books for a second? Yeah. So, Anacrophobia. Thank yep. you for the nightmares, because I still see that man slashing his wrists and the cogs and whirs jumping out to this day. So thank you very much for that. Um, is it true? I, I, there's a passage in one of the uh, spin-off books, I Who, that says that you and Rob Shearman were writing to each other. Whilst he was writing Chimes of Midnight, you were writing Anacrophobia, because they were both sort of Sapphire and Steely t- style works yeah. that you weren't sort of overlapping that is um absolutely true that is that is exactly what was happening because i know um 
certainly, I think when I was doing Necrophobia, I had this idea about characters being caught in time loops and doing the same things again and again. And when I saw that he was doing that in Chimes of Midnight, I went, I can't do that. That's right. too similar. Um, uh, I'm not sure if what I was writing affected him after I was one. Uh, but uh, yeah, we were doing very sort of similar stuff. Um, and because it's Saffron Stirling and it's also the mood of it and it's about time and um, in both of them, time itself, you know, is sort of this sort of nebulous threat, which is a very Saffron Stirling thing to do. So, yeah, and also um, that's sort of the old, that's the particular era where uh, you're doing stuff you can't do on TV because mm. Doctor Who on TV was not a, um, not not even a concern at that point, not even a sort of a twinkle in Russell T. Davies's eye or anything. Um, so stuff like the slitting the lists and the lists and stuff, or I think the Doctor slices open someone's chest and oh, it's it's up and there's pendulum a pendulum swing. Oh, fabulous! Yeah. Um, Stuff going, well, they won't, they can't do that on TV, <laughs> even though what I'd written was actually something that you could you could make that on TV and it'd be the cheapest Doctor Who episode ever because you just go to go to an abandoned uh bunker and put people to cl put clocks on their heads, and that's your monster, you know, it's the cheapest monster you could have. Um, I'm still surprised they haven't done that because that, that is such a cheap thing to do. Um, so yeah, um. I think Chimes went better. <laughs> I mean, I love Chimes, but I adore Anagrophobia. It, it, it's one of my favourites of that run. So, um, well, then you say anything goes. Can I skip forward to Touched by an Angel? Because suddenly we're the new series is back. So Doctor Who is back, and I believe you know, like you know things are being looked over in Cardiff like was there a lot more restrictions in writing that book um not with that one I mean with other stuff there has been particularly the comic strips that was a uh, stuff was getting looked over a lot with um touched by an angel I think um the synopsis had been approved and uh I mean, I was in a sort of position where it was I mean, Amy and Roy had already been on screen for a year. So their characters had already been quite well established. So I wasn't going to get that wrong, you know. And in terms of the um, the properties of the Weeping Angels, I think Stephen was fairly cool with me doing what I wanted to do. Um, so in the sense that if I did anything which is too outrageous, he could always do a TV story which contradicts it later on anyway. <laughs> Um, but he didn't, you know, it doesn't actually, it all fit, it still fits, it's lovely. Um, because there's nothing in the next story which has Rory singing Weeping Angels. He doesn't go, What are they? It actually, he actually reacts as though he has seen them before. Um, so yeah, I mean, and that was very much, uh, um, making it feel like the TV show, you know, not, not, not writing a, a, a TV episode script as it were and novelizing it but just going you want to give people reading it the same feeling they get from the very best tv episodes by stephen moffat at that point um 
and certainly stuff like uh, Vincent and the Doctor had really impressed me by how far you could take the emotion and how far you could take the emotion without it being a without backtracking afterwards. You know, um, because Touched by an Angel is about grief and death, and you can you can imagine a version of that book where it ends with um, the Doctor pressing a button on his sonic screwdriver. And the character who has to die is saved mm. and lives. Um, and that would, but then people wouldn't like that book as much because I don't think it would matter. And I had to come on, I had to come <clears> up <throat> with a different, a happy ending, which works when the main, well, it's not a spoiler, it's in the first chapter, it's in the prologue, I think, but by the main, one of the, where um, Rebecca, Rebecca Whitaker dies. And so I have the ending where, uh you see it winds back to the beginning of the relationship and how they met which uh in any relationship there's sort of the two moments there's the two moments of maximum love i think in any relationship uh one is when it begins and one is when it ends i think and um that's when you feel it the strongest uh and so as to go from one to the other i think and sort of keep it going and I'm, I, as I was writing it, I had tears rolling down my cheeks and stuff, and going, "Oh, because I was, I was in it." You know, when you when you write a story, you are uh, feeling what the characters feel. You're absolutely inside everything. Um, and I'd, I'd finish it, print it out, give it to my, um, give it to my girlfriend, my wife, and she'd read it in hand. Then she'd come back out. Someone's going, "You bastard!" With tears streaming down the streets, going, "How could you do that?" Well, we um, can make okay, it was... free for free because I found that book so moving. My reviews out there were I'll say I'm in tears as well. Yeah. Um, and it was it was one of those NSA tasks. I wish, I wish this had been a TV episode or could be made as a TV episode. It, and it was another time, one of those times where I thought, this is very cheeky. How on earth do you do the weeping angels? You know, an alien race that doesn't talk in prose. <laughs> and you did it brilliantly. Yeah, well, that was. I mean, that's why they um, why I did the thing of Blink does, which is they're in Blink, but they don't feature very much in Blink. I think they're only in about if you add up all the scenes and mm-hmm. how much time they take up on screen, it's very small. And so you wanted to ration their appearances, and also um, it was a it was a pain to try and to write them because you know when you're writing any sort of scene, you're writing verbs in terms of stuff action happening things moving and with weeping angels it's and the and the weeping angel was still standing there it was a bit bit closer and so it was very but um i loved writing that book so much because i put a lot of my own sort of life in it and my own sort of feelings about things that had happened to me in the past in it um and it worked to sort of get things out of my system uh, that had been uh, preying on my mind for years and years before that. Um, so yeah, I think that's why why it's a bit more powerful than usual and stuff. And it just it just came together really well. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, that's one of the things I'm. I think that's the best book by a long way. So yes, 
one of the the things we talked about when we did the book club on festival of death was uh whilst there are emotional moments in it it is very much like it feels like a classic doctor who story so you know it's sort of like plot character emotion they're all on par whereas you could feel the influence of the new series and that sort of push of emotion and sentiment in touched by an angel oh it's fabulous yeah i want to sort of dial that up to them to um to the maximum extent really because that's what it's about you know it's not really about the um I mean, there's, there's time traveling and, and there's Blinovich limitation effect and techno babble and stuff. But it's not about that, really. It's a love story. It's about um, a boy and a girl uh, falling in love and having adventures together. And the Weeping Angels just happen to be in the background while they're um, you know, at university together. Then they they go to Rome and um, and yeah, they have the wedding stuff. I mean, I, I, I'm so, I love the wedding thing because it's like, you have this one chapter which suddenly turns into a Richard Curtis movie. Because in my experience, when you get married, that's one day of your life where your life is a Richard Curtis movie. Um, where where the, the, the biggest threat is that um, there's mud on the bride's dress. <laughs> so the doctor uses the TARDIS to get a brand new clean dress straight away. It's like, um, so you have this, it's, obviously it's, it's emotion but sometimes they make you need the joy you need the absolute laugh out loud moments as well to sort of uh set that off i think and to make you care about the couple which you did and it did that wonderful thing you mentioned vigilant the doctor of just the profound effect the doctor and his companions can have on normal people's lives as well which i always think is a great story to tell yeah i mean <clears throat> they're not in it very much <laughs> uh because they, they're just trying to stop the angels and stuff. I mean, yeah, I think. But, I mean, they have lots of things to do. It's not like they're um, um, passive observers or anything, but it's. Um, it, it did lead to, I think there's a couple of scenes in there where Amy's going, why can't you just save her? You know, because that is. And that is one of the sort of things that Doctor Who never quite solves in a way. Uh, I know Russell sort of tried to interrogate it a couple of times in um, The Fires of Pompeii and um, Orders of Mars, this idea that you can save people, um, but then it becomes a problem in itself. It's almost like you shouldn't bring it up at all, isn't it? Because yeah. then you suddenly start thinking about all the times when maybe you should have saved somebody. Yeah, and it's, um, but, but in this story, it's like the whole story is about the fact that she's dead she's gone you know she's not going to come back um so i mean you could do it like a like um the angels in manhattan ending where there's a time paradox and everything is restored to normal and everything's happy but again i, I don't think uh that is the ending the story needs and I, I, I was but in terms of interference i don't recall really getting anything for that one i think it was I think I must have got it right. I was, I was very, I was trying to, you know, I wasn't, and also I'm trying not to sort of overstep any marks because um, once the series came back, the guidance on what you can and cannot do um, shifted quite dramatically um, to the point where um, you can't do stuff which is as extreme as they do on TV now, you know. Um, 
because on TV it's, it's Stephen writing or Russell writing or Chris mm-hmm. writing, they can get away with stuff. Whereas if it's in a book, which is um, which an eight year old might pick up and take into their bedroom and read on their own, people worry about it a lot more. And so, I mean, like Touched by an Angel has um, a love story in it, but it's very sort of coy in terms of um, the sexual relationship. And I know they, I think, because I wrote it so long and cut it down, I think they they have um, Mark as a gay friend who has a, um, uh, which I which I could keep, which was fine. But I know that I had, a, I had a thing where I had another friend who had mental health problems who committed suicide. And as I was going, that's too much. That just, you know, that's the sort of thing where if you're going to do that in a story, like Vincent's and the Doctor, that is the story. You can't just put that in a sort of bit of background. Mm. I mean, I think it's understated in a sort of way that they have this sort of group of friends at university and some of them aren't there anymore later on. And that could be for any number of reasons, but that's why. So, and can I um, let's take a leap away from the printed page into a much glossier page and the comic strips? Because you wrote the comic strips, was it a year and a half? Yeah, was, I think it was about 20 issues or something. Yes, so it was an extended period, wasn't it? So, how, how did that come about? Uh, well, I'd done um, uh, various comic strips for the um, for the storybook for Clayton before that. I think that's what that's the first one I did was for the storybook, and then I did a couple of comic strips. Uh, I did one which was called Death the Doctor, which was quite fun, and the time of my life with Donna. What about? Breaking my heart, the time of her life. Oh boy, that one. Yeah. So again, can you do emotion in comic strips? Can you actually sort of? <laughs> you can. Really, um, and you can. And so I've done those, particularly those last two with um, David Tennant, and they've gone down really well with readers. And uh, Scott, uh, who was sort of the over supervising editor of the comic strip. And they sort of, you know, I'm good friends with Stephen and stuff. So I was sort of quite good at doing stuff which was quite similar to his. So it would match up in terms of style, um, which became a problem quite quickly. Um, because um, I, I was trying to go, what would Steve, what sort of Steve stories will Stephen tell? And I got it right. <laughs> and it's like, you can't do this story. You can't. Because I, I was going, I do this brilliant arc which ends with the TARDIS being possessed by this alien intelligence, which is sort of changing all the corridors around inside and trying to kill them inside it. And I got like a year into that, and they're going, Oh, that's Neil Gaiman's doing that story. Like, Neil Gaiman, you bugger. <laughs> um, but that, that would happen again and again during that period. Because um, I had a story where. Um, Amy and Roy returned into dolls. No. And it was like, oh, you can't do that because that's coming up too. So, uh, I mean, the, the one thing that did surprise me is in, in the comic strip, I had Amy um, 
she, I think she's nude in the first story, and then she's sort of a in a sort of Japanese schoolgirl outfit later on, and then she's disguised as a nurse later on. And I was going, surely Stephen's going to do that, you know, because she was a epigram <laughs> in her first story. You know? Surely you're going to. It gonna... sounds like him. <laughs> it does sound like him, but he didn't go down that way. So I, I thought he, I thought that was, I thought the dressing up as a piece was going to be a motif that we continued, but it wasn't. So was it? Uh, uh... I mean, it was clearly a structured series of adventures because it culminates, doesn't it, in the child of time where everything sort of comes together. Were you asked to sort of present a season like that? Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there are two parts to it. My part of it was really um, the idea of the TARDIS being in, in, infected and then dragging in things where at the end of each story, it would just, it starts off being very small where you see the is the plants that have left behind have been turned into little TARDISes and stuff. And it gets more and more overt with each story that you see people being sucked into the TARDIS um, and being forming, because I do it'd be forming this big TARDIS monster, basically. Uh, but when it became clear that we were up, the direction I was heading was towards the Neil Gaiman story. Right. Um, Scott wanted this other element, uh, which was the Japanese... Girl, uh, Chiyoko, um, and putting her in it, which was his idea. So, um, so that made it like twenty times more complicated because we now have these two arcs working towards something uh, where, uh, where we got to an apotheosis, and I was really sort of struggling a bit then. Um, because in the first version of that story, I had um, an, an idea which I used later on in the Vortex Ice of people seeing themselves frozen and thinking, oh, they must be from my um, future, but actually it's just from their past and they don't remember it. So it was that sort of thing going on, just because that way I could have Rory in the comic strip because it had been pissing me off. That people kept on going, oh, it doesn't count on the strip because Rory isn't in it. So where does it fit? So I wrote this version of Potheosis where Rory comes back. Um and I sort of got an email from I think from Tom and Peter just going, well, could you do that again without Rory in it? Because that makes it really complicated. <laughs> and we we don't want him in it. So uh and then and then for the last one, um, when you were asking earlier about stuff I'd written as a kid, uh, when I was about 15, I'd planned out a Doctor Who series. You know, I'd moved on from doing scripts and synopsis. I was, I was a showrunner in my own head by that point. Um, and episode one of that series ended with the, the planet Earth being blown up, going, that's your first cliffhanger. Boom. Earth destroyed. Start um, big, yeah. And so I got to use that. <clears throat> use that at the end of part one of Child of Time. Going, planet has been blown up. Get out of that. Yeah. <laughs> and you did. Um, I'm going to ask two questions about the comics. One, which is going to make me sound extremely dense, but please be kind with me. And the other, I'm just very curious about. So one is, how on earth do you start putting together a story? which is effectively a series of still images with sort of pace and momentum 
and moments of drama and things like that. I resisted reading the comics for a long, long time because I just didn't think it was something. And then when I got my first graphic, I did the end game one first and I read that through and then I just bought all of them because I was obsessed. Um, but to this day, I'm like, I, I'm not sure I could do it. I'm not sure I could sort of write down a synopsis, which is effectively a series of still images. Enlighten me. It's an odd thing to do. It's, it's quite close uh, to writing a movie script, I think, um, in terms of the grammar. Um, I mean, I was very lucky. I had Scott Gray as my sort of executive producer, as it were. Um, not just give me advice, but I'd, I'd send the script in, and then two days later, it would come back, having been rewritten by Scott, going, "This is how you. This is how you write a comic strip script, Connor." And you get feedback from the artists and stuff going of what they could do and what they couldn't do and how many boxes you can have on a page. And there's a lot of learning, but also I'd read comic strips since I was a kid. So I knew a lot of the grammar instinctively. I mean, like you try and end every page on a little bit of a mini cliffhanger, you know, that's sort of a scene change. If you're turning the page, that's a really good way to see change scenes and stuff. Uh, and, um, what was I going to say with that? Uh, and also, I mean, the, the one thing which is essential is um, every panel, every box, as it were, is something happening. It has to be a verb. It has to be the doctor punches uh, the Dalek in the face. It can't be the doctor has punched the Dalek. It can't be the doctor is punching the Dalek. It has to be a right. verb. It has to be. So it's like a series of actions. Yeah. So if you can do sort of the um, Amy jumps, jumps, jumps off the um, and lands on and jumps onto the train. Okay. You're thinking, what is actually the picture going to be? The picture is going to be her in midair, and that's that's going to be sort of like so. Um, you are you're trying to tell a story, and it's. It's it's just um, a movement because sometimes you read comic strips where it's just people talking, you know, and it's in a, they're in a flat or something, and all the all the angles are the same and stuff. And I I was, was told again and again, don't write it like that. Write it as action. Write it as sound effects, explosions. Do all the stuff they can't do on TV. So we just probably have tower blocks turning into axons and stuff, fighting each other. Yeah. Um, or have a musical episode and uh, in the comic strip. Uh, and did the line, the witch in the wardrobe one and stuff. And you're just going, what, how can I sort of take it further? You know, do stuff which hasn't been done before. Um, show off. You know, hopefully get more gigs off the back of it. That's what you're trying to do all the time, really. I always love um, seeing where the full pages hit. I seem to remember with Super Nature, there was like a, there was a page or two, and then you turn the page, and then it was the full spread of Amy and the Doctor and the big lush forest, you know, like making a statement of like, here we are, it's the eleventh Doctor in the comics. Yeah, I mean, part of that is Scott sort of insisting on these things, and. Uh, uh, Particularly for the fine, for the cliffhanger, I think, because then you just go. So, for this, the second to last page would be 
I'd go have eight panels because it'd go boop, 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 be back and forth between scenes or locations. It'd be fast um, and lots of information, lots of stuff happening. And then the final page, single single image splash, um, axons walking through Japan, fantastic. Uh, or planet Earth blows up or something which is uh, big because, I mean, I think a couple of them the cliffhanger is half a page of um, Amy's turned into a moth or something, and it doesn't work as well. I think if that had been a full page, that would, that's, I mean, that's what they do all the time now. It's always a full page. Um, because other, otherwise it just it doesn't have that sort of cliffhanger feel to it, I think. Well, my other question about the comics then was obviously this is a massively collaborative process uh, because you're writing this all down and then it's all going to be brought to life by an artist does it always look how you envisaged uh no it usually looks better i think uh i think um generally it was just wonderful it was a wonderful process i think i only ever had to make one criticism of the art at once uh which was just because there was an alien in the room which shouldn't which was going nobody walks in the next over the pages <laughs> when he comes in so it was just oh it was a mistake it was just a because asking an artist to redraw a panel is you know that's you know it's really sort of the, the, the sort of a joker card you can't ask that ask for that very often um and uh, that's usually because you've made a mistake in your writing in the first place um, but no, I think um, the stuff that Dan McDade would, did with the screams of death was fantastic. Um, language, it was, I mean, it was wonderful. They're all wonderful. I mean, the only thing I wasn't totally happy with was the Adrian Salmon one. Um, because what I'd wanted was, um, I don't know if you'd, um, if you've seen the beginning of the film Yellow Submarine, there's a sequence with Eleanor Rigby where it's photographs of places which have been sort of given washes of colour. Mm -hmm. And I wanted um, the, the, the uh, Brighton where it was a seafront town to be done like that. So it was like a, a photograph with a, of, a, of a Victorian seaside as a wash colour. So it wouldn't be a drawing. It would be um, drawings of the Doctor and any other characters in the front of this, but the backgrounds would be... Um, manipulated photographs and that didn't go through the process <laughs> so it didn't end up like that which i think it's a pity i think that would have been cool that made it stand out i think would be bold enough to say that i think on occasion with the comics it's as visually stunning as doctor who has ever been like I, I can, I can vividly depict, uh, see the the Doctor of the Widow in the wardrobe, uh, the Lion, the Witch in the wardrobe strip, that fabulous um, library that they walk into yeah. at the beginning, and all the sort of artwork that's going on around the boxes, and oh, just just gorgeous. Like you must have got some some of them back in sometimes, and just been it just blew your mind away. Oh, I, I've got some on my wall over there. I just love them so much, but. Um... Yeah, I mean, particularly that one was one where the um, uh, the artist got it. Uh, Rob uh, 
Bob Davis did that one. Um, and he went with it and he just, he was adding stuff of his own, which I hadn't written into the story at all. He was putting extra little monsters in the back in the corners and stuff. Um, so I think he has someone turning into a fish person. Oh my God, I didn't put that in the story. Uh, yeah, I think, and also that was, um, that's another one of those ideas I'd had kicking around for about 10 years. Because back when Big Finish did the Unbound series, you know, um, the Derek Jacobi mm. uh, one that Rob Shimon did and stuff. At the time, I pitched this, going, I want to do a Doctor Who story as though it was written by um, C.S. Lewis and John Macefield in that sort of style. Um, what if Doctor Who had been around in 1930s? How would you have been then? Never heard anything back. <laughs> <laughs> But you, you could have had you could have had that story you know ten years earlier if they'd opened that email. It's a cruel basis business, isn't it? And then they missed it out. Shows, so <laughs> it shows that nothing is ever no good idea gets wasted. It always just it gets used again, and lots of stuff has been like that. This might seem like a bit of an unfair question because you did a lot of them, but do you have like a particular favourite of the comics? I can probably narrow it down to about five. <laughs> um, I like the time of my life. I like death of the doctor. Uh, I love um, the professor. Um, uh, the, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. <laughs> I can't the titles now. And um, do not go gentle into that good night. The one which is just set in old people's home. Oh yeah. Uh, which. Uh, again, it was a different sort of story. It was a smaller story, um, and yes, it was a it was a rip off of the Twilight Zone. I know that, uh, but uh, those those are the ones I, I think work best. I think, um, but I'm you know, yeah, and the Peter Capaldi one. I I, I think I'm I'm sort of massively proud of them all. Um, I wish I could do more. I mean. I was always sort of quite grumpy that the other people doing the comics, Titan or whatever, doing the comics, they never asked me to do any more. more friend. I've been delighted to do so. But who knows? Who I'd knows? never forget the first time reading Time of My Life and uh, all those snapshots into, oh, I was like, man, I want, I want to see more. I want the, all of these to be a comic, <laughs> like when they're little kids in the school and that, you know. Well, each page, each page of that had a reason for it, which was, um, it was, uh, you know, one of them was the, uh, um, the dogs, which was the, the dogs milled, um, which was um, a Russell J. Davis sort of nonsense thing of every sort of alien is basically a human animal head stuck on a human body. And there was a page which was like an alien's pastiche or predator pastiche. And then there's a Stephen Moffat page. And then there was a history gone wrong page. And then there was um, a, a Doctor Who magazine in the 1990s psychedelic story page. Um, so it was like the, each story was a different genre of um, Doctor Who. I was to get them all in, in some way. And it's like you said earlier, it is one of those times where there's a gut punch at the end, which you know people probably wouldn't expect from comics. But it, it's like um, 
when Izzy was turned into Destry, you know, and, and in Beautiful Freak. And I just yeah. felt so much reading that. Or when she first kissed, I can't remember the woman's name now, the first lesbian kiss in Doctor Who. You remember mm. the moment? Yeah. Things like that. And then the ending of that with the Donna, the hologram. Oh, this is, you know, and, and this is a series of still pictures, but it just goes to show if the story is good, it can yeah. move you. Yeah. And, and... Because it was quite close to the TV episode, I think people still had the actors' voices in their heads and stuff, and it sort of fitted quite well. And people really couldn't see where it was going, I think, as well, because it, it just seemed it was quite jokey for like nine pages, and then suddenly it's serious for, for the tenth. You sort of tapped into that, uh, everyone going, Well, there wasn't enough. We should only had one season. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the point of this thing. It was going, We've only got one issue. We've got to try and give the impression that she's been had a whole year's worth of comic strips. Can you, can you give her a year's worth of comic strips in oh, one issue? Boy, can I? Yes. 